Thank you, Stephanie. That was very, very sweet. Um, it is true. I am an introvert and a homebody. And so being up here, um, you know, to do this, to be up here in worship, I've got my handsome hubby next to me. I can kind of hide behind him and his sensational beard. But to be up here on my own is, it definitely gives me a little bit of, you know, the nerves and the whatnot. But I do feel very honored um, to be trusted to share this morning and um, to share what God's placed on my heart. So this morning I would like to share from Mark chapter 5. Um, this particular portion of scripture is actually one of my favorites. It is um, a passage that I have read time and time again, and I have heard message after message on it. Um, recently, a few months back, I listened to a message on this passage by Stephen Furtick, who is um, one of the pastors I like to listen to, and I was really moved by what he had to say, and so I thought I would share some of what I gleaned from his message, as well as what I really have felt the Spirit lay on my heart. Uh, this passage begins with a man named Jairus and his pursuit of a miracle for his little girl. Um, there is a lot of really good things, a lot of really great things in Jairus's story that I'd love to share, but that's actually not my focus today. Today I want to focus on the miracle in the middle of Jairus's story, the interruption that occurred while he waited for Jesus to come to his house and heal his daughter. I want to share on the woman with the issue of blood. However, before I jump into her tale, I can't just skip over Jairus completely. So if you brought your Bibles with you, I would like you to turn to Mark chapter 5, and we will begin in verse 21. And it says, When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. So again, we, we have this man whose name is Jairus, and it says that he's a man of position. The word tells us that he is a synagogue ruler. So this may have likely been an elected position at the local synagogue, which was their centers for worship. So, you know, similar to a church. Um, historically speaking, his duties may have included things like caring for the building, uh, potentially running the weekly schooling that was going on there, and then overseeing and supervising the public worship. So to make him a little more relevant, think of him much like a worship leader on staff at a, at a church in like modern day. So he would have had very similar responsibilities, um, similar respect, a similar position, um, if, if you need to relate to him a little bit more, maybe he was wearing the skinny jeans with the ankle boots, and maybe he has the oversized jacket layered over the faded flannel, uh, maybe even this weird poofy curly hair they got going on right now that kind of just hangs off one side of their head. Maybe that's what Jairus looked like as this old school worship leader. We don't exactly know because obviously the Bible doesn't tell us any of that, but we do know that he was a prominent leader, he was respected, and he had a problem. His daughter was dying. And Jairus needed Jesus. So Jairus musters up all of his humble faith, and he comes to Jesus, and when he sees him, he falls at his feet, and he pleads with him to come home with him, touch his daughter and heal her, and Jesus agrees. 
And this is where we get to the middle of the story. So we're going to pick up in verse 24. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. That passage is just one of my favorites. I, I love the story that is told here. But to recap, we've got this prominent man who's convinced Jesus to come to his house, right? They're on track. They're heading for this healing. When this woman enters the story, she inadvertently causes a huge scene and interrupts the momentum of Jairus' miracle. Now, I don't know about you, but I probably would not have been as gracious as Jairus just to stop and wait. Like, I've got Jesus' attention, my daughter's life is on the line, we're heading that way, and then this woman interrupts it, causing Jesus to just stop, and he says, who touched me? I probably would have been standing there, maybe glaring at the crowd, maybe shifting my weight back and forth a little bit, thinking, somebody better answer him or I'm about to touch someone. You want some contact tracing, Jesus? I will trace that point of contact and maybe give them some contact of my own because I don't have time for this. My daughter's life is on the line. But we have no accounting of Jairus' thoughts or reactions. The entire story just shifts. The focus shifts to this woman, a woman who has no name. The authors do not, for whatever reason, give us her name. She's known for her problem, the woman with the issue of blood. Can you imagine what that would be like? I wish I, wish I knew why, because this story is found in a couple of the other Gospels as well, why her name isn't given. Names are like, they're so important to me. I'm one of those people that I put a lot of thought into my children's names. So when, you know, we were expecting our kids, we would spend months debating names and going over their meanings and their significance. Like, it was really important to me. And, you know, Clint and I, we would discuss potential names that we liked, and I would bring up one, and he'd veto it, and he'd bring up one, and I'm like, that's dumb. We're not naming our kid that. And, you know, and then we'd even get down to, well, if we named our child this, what would their nickname be? And so when we found out that our oldest was a son, we both kind of liked the name Titus. It's a good, strong, biblical name. But our last name is White. And so we felt that Titus White would inevitably become Tidy Whitey. And that's just mean. We can't, so Titus was out, out of the running. But 
my parents also put a lot of thought into my name. My name is Jennifer Joy. And Jennifer means fair one. And my parents did not give me that name due to my pale complexion. However, my, Brit my Bl British bloodline has certainly ensured that I am white as rice, and I burn easily, I don't tan well, but fair one implies beauty, love, and graciousness. It's an old poetic way to reference someone that is beautiful and beloved, set aside as special. Think of it maybe like Shakespearean phraseology. Oh, my fair one, how I love thee. So by definition, Jennifer is a lovely and noble name. However, when I came home from the hospital, my older brother was not quite two. And he could not say Jennifer. So he called me a fur, which is the last half of Jen, a fur. And a fur turned into fur fur, which turned into fern, which then became ferny and quickly devolved into Ferny Werny Wern. And so what was once this regal and dignified name became Ferny. And that was my childhood nickname, Ferny. Nick nicknames are kind of like that though, right? They, they just have this way of, like you get slapped with it as a kid and it sticks and that's what you're known by. Um, this little country church that I grew up in, in the best state, Idaho, had a really lovely family and they had a very precocious little boy who managed to leave a mess everywhere he went. His dirty, smudgy little handprints could be found all over the house. I mean, the TV screen, end tables, sliding glass doors, windows, you name it, he had left his mark. And so his parents named him Smudge. And it stuck. Like, for the longest time, I legitimately thought that was his name, Smudge. But it gets better. I actually read a story about a little guy who, as an infant, we're talking baby in diapers here, um, he, he had some gastrointestinal issues, we'll put it that way, which rendered him a little gassy. And so his father lovingly nicknamed him Whistlebritches. <laughs> and that was his name growing up, Whistlebritches. I will take Fernie over Smudge or Whistlebritches any day. Those poor boys, like their, their nickname, their identity was given to them based on, you know, their behaviors. And that's, that's how we find this woman here in Mark chapter 5. Her issue became her identity too. She was known as the woman with the issue. Her difficulty now defined her. Her problem was how you could pick her out in a crowd. It really seems so unfair. I mean, can you imagine if you were known and labeled by what you're going through, the issues that you're having? Like, who does that? But maybe it's not so uncommon. You know, may maybe we do it too. Oh, look, there's the woman that fights nonstop with her husband. She's a real peach. Oh, there's that guy that just can't seem to keep down a job. I ran into so-and-so's kid at the mall the other day. Looks like he's strung out again. What a junkie. Or quick, avoid eye contact. Here comes you-know-who. And if she corners you, she's going to prattle on and on about you-know-what. There goes the divorcee, the porn addict, the gossip, 
That one's broke. She's depressed. He has crippling anxiety. Maybe it's not so uncommon that we label people and cause them to identify with their issues. Or we label ourselves. And that's how we find her here. She's labeled with her problem. She's so unlike Jairus, and yet so much the same. See, Jairus is a man, which back then makes him even more important. And he's, we, we're given his name and his position. Maybe he even has some, you know, a little bit of power within his position, certainly respect. She has no name given to us. She's cast aside and labeled as unclean. She's an outcast. But they both have a problem. See, position and respect cannot fix Jairus's problem. And money and physicians can't fix her problem. Only Jesus. Only Jesus can manifest the miracle that they are desperate for. And only Jesus can silence the suffering. And she's been suffering a long time, 12 years. It is speculated that this woman's issue of blood was a uterine hemorrhage. So this is a very private issue. It's not something that you would know just by looking at her. She didn't have a 12-year nosebleed. She's not bleeding out her eyeballs. Like, this is very private. This is 12 years of bleeding from her uterus. Did you catch that, ladies? 12 years. 12 years of being on your lady days. 12 years of shark week. Like, her Aunt Flo did not just show up for the monthly visit. No, she moved in, unpacked her bags, and started rearranging furniture. This was 12 years. There is not enough pints of Ben and Jerry's ice cream to deal with 12 years of that kind of suffering. I mean, I make light of it now, but the really sad part is her culture in that time that particular type of condition would have rendered her unclean. And being unclean meant you were socially outcast. So she was alone. As an unclean person, especially an unclean woman, there were certain people she couldn't even come in contact with. So you're talking 12 years of no physical touch, no real embrace, unclean set aside. She's been marginalized because of her mess, alone in her issue, slowly bleeding out. Because it wouldn't have been real obvious on the outside what was going on on the inside. This was a private pain. She was hemorrhaging from within. Sometimes I wonder how many of us or the people that we come in contact with are hemorrhaging on the inside silently suffering from wounds that we don't see. Maybe, maybe their finances are bleeding out. Maybe they've got marriages that are slowly seeping away. Families that are breaking apart. Children that are really going through it. Addictions that have such a strong hold on them that it's bleeding them dry. Maybe, maybe it's a diagnosis that's just devastating horrible hurts from the past that just don't heal. Or maybe perhaps people are drowning quietly in grief, just numb from the pain of the loss of someone that 
was gone too soon. Or that really awkwardness of grieving for the loss of the living. Relationships that have been completely severed. People just, boom, gone out of your life. So many of us are walking around desperately trying to keep it together on the outside while inside we're losing it. Our life feels messy and sometimes we feel like there's no end in sight. Just, just when we absorb one blow, here comes another. And that one we didn't even see coming. We're carrying wounds that just make us weary and these heavy burdens that can beat us down. And perhaps, like this woman, we've spent all we've had trying to fix it. Verse 26 says, she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. She had been to doctor after doctor after doctor, all of them willing to take her money, but none of them can fix her. It just got worse. The bleeding never stopped. I wonder what are we throwing our money at sometimes in the hopes of fixing our situation? What is, what is our medication? I know like for some we hear that they turn to those really nasty and obvious vices like drugs and alcohol that people can use to kill their pain or attempt to. But we are all saved, sanctified people. So I know that it's not those really nasty vices. Maybe it's the less obvious ones. Maybe we're turning to things like social media to try and manage the mess that is going on in our minds. Maybe we're scrolling for hours, you know, reading the comments, looking for likes, eventually spiraling down the rabbit hole of pointless cat videos. And yet when we put our phone down, our problems still persist. They're still there. And now we've wasted hours of our day and we just feel worse. Or maybe, maybe we've been to therapist after therapist after therapist, all of them willing to take our cash and co-pays, but none of them able to fix what's really going on. So many times we're given a prescription to make it right, a, a label on a bottle and a label on ourselves. We're told that our issues aren't really our issues. It's our parents' fault, our husband's fault, our children's fault, our boss's fault, our coworker's fault. It's anybody's fault of our own that we're in the mess that we're in. We're given new identities that might make us happy, new life plans to put into place, new programs to go through that will make us well. And yet, we grow worse. The bleeding doesn't stop. I want to pause here for a second to say, please don't get me wrong here. I am not, by any means, anti-therapy or anti-counseling, not even a little bit. I have witnessed firsthand how it has helped people that I know and love that are really struggling to find the tools they needed to deal with their issues. There is no shame at all in therapy, counseling, prescription drugs when needed. But therapy and medication don't always deal with the root of what's going on. I think that we need to remember that we need Jesus and therapy. Maybe the Prince of Peace with our Prozac. Because 
we have to guard who we allow to speak into our lives. We need to have some sort of safety measures of who's giving us counsel. If, if you're seeing friends or counselors or even pastors, God forbid, and they're giving you counsel that goes against the word of God, you need to pause because what the word of God says for your life, that is unchanging. Because sadly, not everyone out there has your best interest in mind. And not everything we turn to is for our good. Maybe like me, you like a little bit of retail therapy. That kind of helps ease whatever's going on in your head. But I'm here to tell you, Jeff Bezos does not care about your depression and misery. He just wants you to click add to cart. Or maybe it's this YouTuber that you follow and you think they're funny and they take the tension off for a while. But that YouTuber, they couldn't care less about crippling anxiety. They just want you to like and subscribe. TikTok does not care that time is running out to pay your mortgage. Maybe you're turning to work and you think that the more I work, the better this will be. But working 60 hours a week will not work the dysfunction out of your home. Or maybe like me, it's exercise because exercise is the one thing in my life I can control. I am in charge of what I do at the gym. Nobody else controls that. It's my little ounce. But I'm here to say that running a couple of miles every day and you know, maybe five miles on the weekend will not put you further from your problems. Only Jesus can heal the hurts that are going on on the inside. Verse 27 says, when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. She heard about Jesus. Maybe she heard about the miracles. Maybe she heard about blind eyes being opened, about the lame men walking, about demons fleeing, about the dead living again. She heard about Jesus. Have you heard about Jesus? You're like, Jen, I'm in church. Of course, I've heard about Jesus. I mean, like, really heard about Jesus. It's one thing to be, yeah, I know who Jesus is. But when you get firsthand testimony, you've heard about Jesus. You've heard what he can do, what he can really do. When you've heard that he can bring peace into chaotic situations, he can bring courage and faith when you're afraid, that when you're full of anxiety, depression, and grief, he can help you find serenity and joy in him. He can heal the brokenhearted. He can give purpose to those of us that feel lost and overlooked. Praise God, he can bring the prodigal home again. See, it's not just enough to hear about Jesus, though. When this woman heard about him, it says she came up behind him. That means she pursued him. She went after him. Hearing alone will not bring our healing. We need to pursue Jesus. We need to turn towards him. We need to set our face and our intentions on Jesus. This woman went after him, and then she touched him. The word used here for touch is haptomahi. 
And it means to fasten or lay hold of, to cling to. So when you're picturing this story in your mind and she's, you know, maybe shuffling along the ground trying to just get to the hem of his garment, she, she did not just go boop and touch his clothes and suddenly she's healed. The word that is used here for touch implies that she grabbed onto it. She laid hold of it. She was not going to let go till she got what she came for. She connected with Christ until she was cleansed. See, it's not enough to just hear about Jesus and pursue. We need to connect with Christ. We need to fasten ourselves to him and his way of living, his morals, his mindset. We need to cling to his grace and his mercy. We need to lay hold of his love and his kindness, his justice and his compassion. Because it's when we lay hold of Jesus, like grab on and cling to Jesus, that's when healing can begin. We need to pursue him. She came, she heard, she came, she thought, or she touched, she thought. She heard, she came, she touched, she thought. Verse 28, because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. She thought in her mind, one touch and I will be okay. One touch. She, whatever she had heard about Jesus, she let it sink in because it changed the way she thought. If I can just touch him, I'll be okay. One touch from Jesus will change my situation. Let me repeat that for effect. I think I lost you. One touch from Jesus can change my situation. She believed it. What are we thinking? What's going on in, in our minds when it comes to the things that we're going through? Do we really, truly believe that Jesus can heal us, can help us, that he even wants to? What are the thoughts that are going on? So the NIV that I've been reading says she thought to herself, but other translations say she said to herself, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And the Amplified Version says she kept on saying, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. So I want to ask, what are we speaking? What are we speaking over our lives and our situations? When when you're talking to people about what you're going through, what are the words coming out of your mouth? Are they words of hope or is it hopelessness? Are they words of peace or is it panic? Is it faith or is it fear? Because the things that we're thinking become the things that we're speaking over our situation. And I want to say it's, it's all well and good for me to get up here and to tell you that you need to think on Jesus, and you need to speak hope and peace and faith into your life. I mean, I, I could do that all morning, but the reality is you have to live that out, and that's hard. It's much harder to put that into practice. What, what does that look like, practically speaking? Just read your Bible and pray more? Well, yes, but also not necessarily. If, if prayer is really hard for you and the word of God confuses you. You don't understand it. 
then it's going to be really hard for you to understand and speak those things over your life. So if, like this woman, you're going through it, then first off, I want to tell you, you're in the right place. Because it's the first step, is to surround yourself with people that can walk out this journey with you. Join one of our Bible studies. Or even link up with one of our small groups that we have. Find a tribe that can pray with you and dig into the word of God with you so that if you're confused, you can understand it. And that understanding will allow you to then speak the word of God over your situation. And then like this woman, your thoughts and your speech, they'll bolster your faith. And that faith will lead to your healing. Verse 29 says, immediately her bleeding stopped. And she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. She heard, she came, she touched, she thought, she was healed. But her story doesn't end there. And really, it could have, right? I mean, she got what she came for. But Jesus knew she needed more. Verse 32, but Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. See, Jesus didn't just change her situation. He changed her identity. It was not enough to heal her physically. He knew he had to heal her emotionally. He made her whole and complete. He was not about to let her crawl in like some thief and steal a miracle only to be really unchanged on the inside. It wouldn't have changed her situation. It just changed her physical condition. No, he lifted her up and restored her position. He healed both her private pain and her public humiliation. He did not just give her a cure. He gave her a name. He said, daughter. This is the only time in scripture that Jesus calls someone daughter. You'll find it in a couple of the other gospels like I mentioned, but it's only when referring to this woman. The only time that he calls someone daughter. See, Jesus was demonstrating that Jairus' daughter was not the only one that mattered here. He pauses in the middle because this daughter mattered too. This woman was his child, and now she would no longer be known by her issue, no longer be alone in her pain, no longer an outcast. It wasn't enough to heal her hemorrhage. He restored her relationships. So maybe you're here today, and all of your relationships are right and in good standing. Maybe things are going really well. Maybe you're not currently riding the struggle bus. And I, you know, that's great. Maybe, maybe you're thinking, Jen, this doesn't really apply to me because, well, my life is good, really good. It's the best. I love it. It's fantastic. And that's great. It really is. Because I think, you know, God, 
wants us to be in a good place. And so if you're in that season of life and you're not going through it, then I want to encourage you to find the marginalized that are messy right now. Seek out the people that are suffering so that you can support them. Be the tribe that somebody needs you to be for them. I would like to encourage the worship team if you guys could come up. And while they're coming up and finding their place, I want to say that if you're sitting here this morning and you're a little bit more like me, life is messy. Maybe you're really going through it, dealing with a private pain that nobody sees. I want to give you some hope that Jesus sees you. You are his child. You matter. He wants to restore you. He wants to fix your issues, to heal your hurts, and to give you a new identity. See, this world is pushing so hard to tell you who you need to be. There is a very real war being waged right now for your identity and your children's identity. And there is a very real enemy that is pulling out all the stops to get you to identify as anything but a child of the living God. Because the enemy knows that if he can change your identity, he can change your position. And if he can change your position, he will change your destination. If he can get you to believe that you are your mess, you are your brokenness, your hurt, you are everything that anyone has ever said or done to you. You are your abuse and your pain. You are your grief. You are worthless, cast aside, overlooked. If he can get you to truly identify as this, then he wins. It's over. Oh, but Jesus. Oh, but Jesus. Jesus came to tell you that you are his. His son, his daughter, you are so much more than your mess. Your identity is as his child. He created you. He knit you together in your mother's womb. And he knows your name. He calls you to himself. You are loved, cherished, truly special, and adored. You, my friends, are his fair one, beautiful and beloved. Pray with me. Father, I just thank you for today. I thank you for this opportunity. I thank you for the words that have flown through my mouth that you laid on my heart. And I pray that if they pierced one heart here, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would go forth and begin to work on that seed that was planted. That you would help any of us that are going through it, Lord, to find people that we can link up with. Lord, that we would hear more about you. That we would pursue you that we would touch and connect with you so that you can change our thoughts and our speech. Lord, we are, our hearts are so open to you, Lord, for the change that needs to happen. And we praise you, Lord, that you see us and you love us and you have called us by name. Amen.